Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. Welcome back. I'm going to be straight up with you. I have recorded this now three times just trying to get this intro going because we have a new puppy. Well, he's not new to the earth, but he's new to us. And he's refusing to leave my side right now. And he just keeps jingling his cute little collar. So (laughs) at this point, I don't even know what I was trying to say. All I know is that I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful to be here. I'm excited to continue sharing this book with you. We are on chapter seven, which puts us at like the halfway point of the book. So that's exciting and fun and crazy. I feel like this is moving so fast. Are we moving too fast? (laughs) Um, No, it's great. I'm loving it. I really appreciate everyone who's reached out to me so far and just said some, you guys are just, you guys are just awesome. I, I'm truly grateful. A lot of people who I'm friends with, it's not like a ton of strangers or anything, but just, it doesn't matter. For me, it's so special to have people that you cherish tell you you're doing a good job, you know? So thank you so much. You guys are the best. Today's episode is sponsored by pumpkin spice lattes and candy cane chapstick. And I'm thinking if I say that enough times, maybe they'll give me real sponsorships. (laughs) While I wait for those emails to flood in from these companies, let's work our way through chapter seven. Today's story is all about betrayal. Chapter seven, betrayal in the arms of the virgins. Shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries if they are acknowledged, healed, and rare. Brene Brown, The Gifts of Imperfection I lost my virginity to a soul-crushing ASPCA commercial as my boyfriend Brady thrust on top of me. You know, the one where Sarah McLaughlin was singing Angels? The sandy brown carpet had stains and a lingering stench from the frequent urine and fecal matter, gifts his chihuahua Dixon would leave around the house. I remember wondering when the last time he washed his sheets was, as I listened to Sarah's voiceover tell me that for just 60 cents a day, I could save these poor, helpless creatures from imminent death. He was gentle and respectful making sure I was comfortable as one could possibly be while experiencing the inevitable pain of deflowering amid starving felines peering into my soul in the background. We were two clumsy 20-year-olds, the last of all our friends to carry the torch of virginity, eager to set it aflame and cross over into the world of adulthood. Two short months before, we weren't even sure a relationship like ours could work. But now we were branding each other's names into our lives forever in between daytime talk shows while his mom was pretending she couldn't hear us from the next room. If you'd asked me a week before that afternoon if I thought I'd be losing my V-card anytime soon, I would have said not likely. And if you'd asked me six years prior if I thought I'd be losing my virginity to that weird but popular by affiliation guy in Mr. Carson's first period biology class whose plump, towering frame resembled that of a linebacker's? The answer would have been a big, 
hell no. For me, Brady was one of those people in high school that you vaguely remembered and needed a yearbook to put a name to. But he remembered me, and for whatever reason, a few months before I found myself naked in his bedroom, I received an AIM message from him out of the blue. If you're in my generation, then you'll remember AIM, but for the rest of you, it was how we communicated before social media and gifts took over the world. I was minding my own business on the internet when a window popped up from a screen name I didn't recognize, saying, Hey, what's up? This is Brady from high school. At first, I thought he was an entirely different Brady, one who was my friend in high school and that I actually had conversations with on AIM. But after a few minutes of chatting and him sending over his MySpace link, I realized I was in fact talking to a completely different guy that I barely knew. When I asked him how he got my screen name, his answer was all over the place. You gave it to me a long time ago. Or maybe one of your friends. I I can't remember, but you like baseball and football, huh? I let the issue go because in high school, he was awkward. But now, he looked like someone I'd flirt with at a party. Basically, I thought he was hot. Eventually, he asked me out and decided we should meet at a sandwich shop we both loved called Philly's Best. For anyone who's never heard of Philly's Best, it's delicious. But it's also not a restaurant. It's more like a superior subway that serves canned beer, cheesesteaks, and pizza fries. I showed up early wearing a t-shirt and jeans because anything else would have been way too dressed up for the tiny building wedged between a dress barn and a Little Caesars pizza. Our conversation was filled with cringeworthy moments one would expect from two people who didn't really know each other in high school, trying to catch up while also seeing if they were compatible enough to date. About an hour later, we hugged and went our separate ways. I didn't know what to think about the date, and he must have felt the same way, because later that night, he confessed he was concerned about our morals and beliefs being so drastically different. He was referring to the fact that I was a Christian and he was an atheist. But at that point in my life, I was in a rebellion against church. Ultimately, I assured him that Christian was a loose term, so we decided to give it another go and see where it took us. On our second date, Brady took me to the Santa Anita racetracks to bet on horses. We laughed, drank frothy beers, made trifecta bets, and decided that perhaps our brands of awkward meshed well together after all. It wasn't until our fourth date that he actually kissed me. If you haven't caught on yet, Brady wasn't exactly a wine and diner, but I was never the type of girl to need fancy things, and I enjoyed how casual we could be with one another. I came over for turkey burgers and the Dodger game, and as Kershaw pitched, Brady turned to me and paused. Always one to read the room, I could tell he was working up the courage to kiss me, and I opened my lips invitingly while I eagerly waited for him to make his move. We sat there through three strikes as Brady's inner monologue began to pour out of his expressions, and I watched him move his head back and forth as if he were weighing his options. Finally, he raised his eyebrows and his mouth curved into a grimace, as if he were biting into a lemon in a fuck it, I guess I'm going to do this kind of matter. And he kissed me. The entire approach was a bit off-putting, and I wondered if he was kissing me because he wanted to, or because he assumed that was fourth date protocol. But he told me I was the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen, and I was desperate to believe him. 
So after that night where he marveled over my soft lips and glimmering eyes, I never left his side. I became the trophy on his arms, proudly displayed at house parties and baseball games. Only, I didn't fit in with the other walking prizes, and I quickly became aware that I was more like one of those participation awards all the kids get just for showing up, while the other girls were the first placers. All of Brady's friends were the jocks from our high school, and their girlfriends were younger, former cheerleaders with bleach blonde hair and perfectly smooth, tan skin. They all wore a size zero, which they made sure I was well aware of, and had been partying since they were 13. Meanwhile, I spent my teenage years in the theater, drinking Diet Coke and eating my weight in Taco Bell burritos. I was entirely out of my league around Brady's gang of tightly knit friends and I was continually trying to figure out how to blend in as the black sheep. One night, after a day of watching football with my new crew, I curled up next to my mom on the couch and began to cry. I'm not like them, Mom. I'm, I'm not beautiful like them. They're so put together, so pretty, so girly, and, and I wear blue jeans and t-shirts. She sympathized with me, and I wonder if my insecurity stirred up her own 20-year-old pains. Because the next day, she took me to Sephora, and we let an employee fill our bag with the best perfumes, highlighters, bronzers, and eyeshadow. We went shopping, and I found a cute top and cardigan to wear for the barbecue that afternoon. I showed up the new me, but nobody noticed. The bronzer, perfume, brightly colored blouse eyeshadow and highlighter didn't translate. I wondered if I was standing in the shadows of the sun. Maybe the light wasn't hitting my bronze cheeks. Perhaps they weren't standing close enough to tell that I smelled like a daisy now instead of whatever budget perfume I could find. I'd traded in my drugstore makeup and my Kohl's clothes and still nobody saw a difference. And when I excused myself to the bathroom and looked into the mirror at the golden-hued eyeshadow on my pale skin, I suddenly felt ridiculous. Still, I let new me stick around for months and years to come. The new me was so much cooler than the old me because she could keep up with the guys beer for beer and look cute doing it. She loved sports and booze, but she also wore wedge heels to softball fields and drank mudslides from coffee cups while she watched her popular in high school boyfriend run bases with his other popular in high school friends. I was in for the first time in my life, yet I'd never felt more alone. Our connection began to crumble about the same time it did with Nick, when Brady turned 21. His birthday was a whole six months before mine which meant I was no longer the most beautiful girl in the world, but rather, dead weight. In early September, his best friend Steve invited all of his buddies and their girlfriends on an all-expense-paid trip up to Crater Lake, Oregon, for his dad's wedding. Steve's dad was loaded, and he went all out for the event, renting Greyhound buses and stocking them with booze, and putting two couples each in pop-up trailers all around the property. I'd never been to Oregon and was excited, so I wondered why the pit of my stomach was churning in knots the morning we left. Brady didn't seem very thrilled that I was going to this weekend adventure he invited me to, and you could cut the tension with a knife as I stepped out of my car that morning with my small suitcase in hand. It 
felt like he was hoping I'd gotten to an accident on the way or slept in and missed the bus. I tried to shake the feeling off as nerves since I'd never done anything like this before and proceeded to get drunk off whatever anyone would hand me on the eight-hour party bus ride. When we arrived in Oregon, the vibe changed, and I was feeling hopeful. We barely had time to drop our things off in our trailers and change into bathing suits before a man with shoulder-length blonde hair and easy eyes had us all hop into his van. He offered us pot as he drove us up a long, windy road that led to the top of a giant river. There, we grabbed rafts, filled them with beer, and began an afternoon river float. The float was fantastic. With each twist and turn and cold beer, I felt more and more comfortable and sure that I'd merely been creating problems in my mind. But once we were off the river and my legs hit the dirt, I could feel it again. The river of resentment for my presence. Less than a week before, we were mapping out our remaining two-year college plan and discussing where we'd live together. But now, Brady could barely even make eye contact with me. And every time I'd press to try and find out what was wrong, he pulled distantly farther away. The wedding night came, and I took my time curling my hair and painting my face with the other girls before slipping on a short, strapless, floral dress and heading to the outdoor venue to watch the I Do's. It was a beautiful ceremony, and the party was even better. There was an open bar, but since we were at an actual venue, they were checking IDs, and I wasn't 21 yet which meant Brady had to get my drinks for me. But he kept disappearing. While his friends pulled their girlfriends in close during slow songs, my date was nowhere to be found. I made my way over to the bar with Steve's little sister, Ashley, and we played off the whole, oops, I totally left my ID back at our campsite, act well enough to land us two white Russians. There was karaoke happening on a large stage lit by hanging lights, and I finally found Brady sitting three rows from the front with a few of his friends. I went to sit down next to him, and suddenly the DJ called out, Brady, come to the stage! He leaped from his seat and ran to the stage, grabbing the mic and calling each one of his friends and their girlfriends by name to join him. There was only one name he seemed to miss. Mine. I sat there in the third row from the front as I watched all of these people sing Garth Brooks's hit, I've Got Friends in Low Places, and suddenly felt completely sober in this beautiful oasis as I realized that I didn't belong to Brady or these people or to anybody. A few days after we got home, he confirmed what I already knew. It wasn't too much thinking, too high of an altitude, or too many white Russians after all. He was pulling away. A week before, he wanted to spend every single waking minute with me, and now he was saying he thought it would be best if we saw each other less. Space was the dagger he threw. He felt we needed space. I don't want to break up. I just think we should spend more time with our friends and less time together. But you're the one who always has me come over even when I suggest we take a night off or something. I'm just confused because this seems out of nowhere. I replied. You just... You love too much, Andy. I could sense by the way he said it that he was trying to open my eyes to everything that was wrong with me. It was as if he thought telling me this truth would tone me down and we could go back to when I was calmer, cooler, less vulnerable, and less in love with him. 
I wasn't sure how to process this new revelation that I loved too much because I also wasn't ready to let him go. So I agreed to space and let him call the shots. Instead of spending more time with our friends, but maintaining a relationship like he claimed he wanted, Brady began screening my calls and direct messages. He started canceling plans, alleging he was busy while I knew well and good he wasn't. One night we had plans to meet up after his softball game. I stopped being invited to those. And he never showed. I tried to call, send texts, and admittedly went a little, okay, a lot, crazy when I drove to the local pizza joint he and his buddies frequented after games and saw him look at my phone call, put his phone back in his pocket, grab his frothy beer, and say something to his friends before they all burst out into laughter. I'd become the punchline, the running gag. He'd grown tired of displaying me on his mantle and tossed me in a plastic bag along with the rest of the junk he was looking to donate. Rage and hate were consuming me from the inside, but I couldn't find a way out of the misery. His claim on my virginity tethered me to him on a shrinking rope, and I could feel it tightening around my neck, but I couldn't find the strength or courage to cut it. I'd given myself to him in a way I'd never done before. And now he was acting as if I were some weird girl who slipped love notes into his locker in school and made up a fantasy about being in a relationship with him or something. The fact that my 21-year-old, recently ex-virgin boyfriend wasn't seeking me out for sex was a big red flag that something sinister was going on here. Men don't suddenly take a pledge of celibacy a few months after biting into the apple. And in my heart, I knew the fact that he wasn't sleeping with me could only match up to one reality. He was cheating on me. My best friend Alwyn was single at the time and had been fiddling around with a new dating website called OkCupid when suddenly she shockingly came across a face in her feed of local potential men that she recognized. My boyfriend. When I confronted him about it, he lied and said he only made a profile to mess with his buddy who had created one. Never mind the fact that his fake page had a profile pic, location, age, description, and he'd taken the time to fill out all the quiz questions. Alwyn and I devised a plan to catch him in his lie, and created me a profile on the website in hopes he'd stumble upon it. If he viewed my profile, the site would inform me, and it'd prove he was actively using the account he claimed was only a hoax. Hopeful, horny young men immediately started messaging me, but I either ignored them or told them I was in a relationship. One guy who seemed nice enough, named David, was curious about why someone in a relationship would be on a dating website, and I filled him in on the saga that was my life. He offered his friendship and advice, which I gladly took, One tip he suggested was that I do whatever I needed to do to uncover the truth. So I did what any girlfriend looking for dirt would do. I snooped. It was around 6 o'clock on a Tuesday evening, and Brady made plans to go get ice cream with me, but when I tried to get a hold of him to confirm a time, he wasn't answering my calls or text messages. I turned to my computer to find him on AIM, so I sent him a message, but he iced me. He forgot that he'd given me his passwords, and there was a gut instinct in me that knew I'd find my answers in his email. So I logged in and instantly felt my heart drop to my feet. 
he had at least three dating profiles on different websites. They all showed that he was looking for casual encounters, and I read some of the graphic, grotesque messages he sent to girls before closing the window. I decided to log into his Facebook next, where I unearthed a message he sent another girl we went to high school with and immediately felt like puking. It was the same, hey, what's up, it's Brady from high school, you're so pretty, line he'd approached me with seven months prior. My eyes were too stunned to leak as I sat cross-legged on my bed in front of the screen filled with my boyfriend's lies and betrayal. I finally understood what Sarah McLaughlin was trying to tell me that afternoon. When I lost my virginity to the commercial with her malnourished animal friends, I was drowning in the endlessness. The lies and wreckage she sang about as I locked eyes with a fading tabby kitten on the screen that I honestly think began crying in the exact moment I was unborn. She was trying to warn me. Her, the kitten, the smell of stale urine and dog feces. They were all trying to alert me. This is dangerous. You're going to feel lost, wrecked, lied to. I was the damn kitten all along, desperate and needy and begging for a 60-cent daily donation or $5 Philly cheesesteak for affection. I didn't care if it was stolen or borrowed or blood money as long as I was fed. I sent an SOS to my bestie and right after, messaged David to see if he wanted to hang out that night with Alwyn and me. Then I got dressed, did my hair and makeup, made myself smell like a daisy, hopped in my car, and drove to Brady's house. I grabbed a softball he'd left in the back seat of my car and walked up to his driveway. Batter up! I knocked on the door. Strike one! I could see from the kitchen window that he was sitting at his computer in stained basketball shorts, his long fingers actively typing away. He was probably planning his next booty call with someone from any of the three or more websites he was creeping. I knocked again. Strike two! The door swung open, and I stepped back to let him move out of the doorframe a bit before hurling the softball at his chest. Strike three! You're the grossest, worst person I've ever known, and I never want to see you again. Fuck you! Brady looked confused, which only fueled my rage. Don't you say a damn word. You know exactly what you've been up to, and now I do too. I saw it all, and I'm done. This is done. We're done. He tried to follow me out to my car to talk, but I was obviously far past the point of conversation and much more in the realm of throw a fucking softball at your cheating piece of shit face. And he quickly realized he was caught, defeated, and done. You're out! That night... I drank Smirnoff ice and made out with David on Lifeguard Tower 13 at Huntington Beach while my best friend walked the sand. Hating Brady, as it turned out, was fantastic. I lost eight pounds in a week on a strict alcohol-only diet, and I was meeting all sorts of guys on the internet who thought I was beautiful. I spent the next two months getting drunk, being drunk, going on dates with random guys, and attending any and every party around so that I could drink and flirt with more random guys. I was getting really good at being the new me. 
I wore high heels and bronzer and smelled like a daisy and knew to never again show another living soul the woman I once was. I recommitted myself to the teachings of A Girlfriend's Guide to Not Ever Being Too Much, written by men for women, and worked overtime to ensure I'd never be the broken girl or the one who loved too much again. I was doing the damn thing, dating around, refusing to be tied down, until one evening when I got a message on OkCupid from a guy I was sure must have messaged me by mistake because he was way too hot for me. (laughs) A guy who looked like something out of a GQ magazine and seemed to be hilarious based off his profile. His name was Derek, and I couldn't know it then, but the moment I hit reply, my life would never be the same again. Unpacking Betrayal Is anyone else beginning to think my relationship patterns are a lot like the song that never ends? Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. If you've ever felt like Bill Murray's character in the movie Groundhog Day when it comes to relationships, it's because we accept the love we think we deserve. And a lot of us don't think we deserve all that much. It's not conscious, at least not entirely. I think deep down, I always knew when I was in a bad relationship. But I was seeing these men as who they could be instead of who they were, and that's why I let a lot of unsettling actions slide. We make excuses for others when we're looking for affection and conclude that it's better to have mediocre love than no love at all. Unfortunately, it's that approach that often leads us into the lion's den to be devoured. What I learned from my time with Brady was the rumors about men were correct. They only want one thing, and once they get it, they want it from someone else. This breach in trust made it difficult moving forward to accept that maybe not all men are created equal. Since I'd yet to see any hard evidence supporting the claim that good, honest young men existed, I walked into the next chapter of my life jaded and continuously looking for cracks in the pavement. I became hyper-focused on finding something wrong so I could validate my theory about men. Through unpacking, I realized I was still holding on to an edge of this page I ripped from the handbook, even though I was now married to a man who was in fact kind and honest. The truth I unearthed from revisiting the story I've been carrying around about my time with Brady was that he and I weren't compatible. I was trying to fit a square into a circle, but the only way to do that was to shave down my square until it was small enough to wedge in. We didn't believe in the same things, but instead of taking that at face value, I declared I'd be different than who I was to make it easier for us to work. By the time I was chucking a softball at him, I didn't know who I was anymore because I'd betrayed that person to be with Brady and now Brady was betraying me. It was like double jeopardy. How could he be convicted for the crime when I'd already committed it on myself first? You may be noticing a reoccurring theme in this book by now. If you're anything like me, it may not immediately sit well with you. Taking responsibility for my place in each scene of my life hasn't been easy, which is why I spent years avoiding it entirely. But that's also why my marriage was missing a key component. Me. All of me. It wasn't until I started doing the uncomfortable work that I realized I was still holding myself back. 
I was afraid of being betrayed again. And in the process, I was still betraying myself. Not allowing yourself to experience love at its fullest capacity is the ultimate betrayal. And I was found guilty when I took the stand and put myself on trial. Maybe my love was too much for a guy like Brady. He clearly wasn't really looking for love in the first place. But that didn't mean it would be too much for everyone. As long as I continued to allow his actions and my betrayal of self to hold a claim of me, I'd never be able to give my love fully to anyone because there would always be a giant chunk of it hidden away in storage. When you're zoomed in on all of the reasons someone may break your heart, you tend to miss all the reasons they won't. My husband loves me. He chose me and continues to choose me daily which is why I needed to finally pardon him from someone else's sins and stop treating my marriage as if it were founded upon a mountain of quicksand. Friends, I want to clasp my hands over yours here and tell you that good men and women do exist. If you find yourself in their mist, in their beds, in their hearts, do yourself and them a favor and don't make them pay for someone else's transgressions. If someone from your past betrayed you, Don't take the memory of that betrayal and in turn betray your new partner, or worse, yourself. Our history isn't our master. It's a teacher. And it can be our most excellent teacher if we lean in close and listen to it. In the words of Otis Redding, you've got to try a little tenderness. Find comfort in the arms of your spouse, in the arms of yourself free from the wreckage of those who hurt you before, and open to give and receive the love you have always deserved. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin, and you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble.